In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. The fourth LDS article of faith states, We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. In our previous episode of the Outer Brightness podcast, we each discussed our past experiences as Latter-day Saints related to the necessity of baptism whether differences in viewpoints on the sacraments or ordinances disrupt the unity of the Christian church, and how we now prepare and receive the Lord's Supper and baptism as born-again Christians. In this episode, we would like to take a closer look at the subject. In previous episodes, we have described our personal journeys out of the LDS Church and toward biblical Christianity. In continuing our faith journeys, one topic that was of particular concern to me was what water baptism is, what it signifies, who must receive it, and whether it is still an absolute requirement for eternal life. During this episode, we hope to address some of these questions and describe how we have grown in our understanding of Scripture concerning water baptism. We will also dive into passages that we often used as LDS missionaries to demonstrate that we must receive baptism in order to be saved and reconsider whether this is still the case. In what has been called the Great Commission, the resurrected Lord Jesus gives one of his last sets of instructions to his closest disciples. He says to them, quote, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this was in Matthew uh, chapter 28. So, in light of this passage, what is Jesus commanding to be done here? Do you think this command was limited to the disciples, or does it apply to the whole church? And what notable instructions about water baptism are given here? So, I think I started with uh, Michael last time, so let's start with you, Paul. Yeah, so I think that Jesus is commanding his disciples to make disciples, and I don't think that, that 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 this specific command is limited only to his uh, first century disciples. I think it applies to the whole church. Um, they're commanded to baptize new believers, new disciples in the name of the father and of the son and of the whole and of the Holy spirit. Um, I, I think it's significant and I want to get your, both of your thoughts here too, but I think it's significant here that the Greek noun onoma is singular. Um, it's not plural as one might expect if, if, say Mormonism were true and, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were three separate gods. Um, you might expect it to say that that they should be baptized in the names of rather than the name of singular. So I want to get your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, so that's my thoughts on that. Great. Yeah. Um, I'll let you go, Michael, and then I'll add my thoughts. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of different thoughts than um, than Paul does, really. I mean, I agree that it, it's a commission for the entire church. I just don't think it would be feasible for, you know, these, these 11 men to baptize every single person by themselves. So I think that was meant for all of us. And, uh, and yeah, I agree. There's very specific instructions to, uh, 
to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but also to observe everything that he has commanded us. So, you know, that kind of goes against what some Christians do, what Paul was just saying, where it's like, oh, you don't really need to be baptized. I mean, that verse very clearly says that we need to be baptizing, um, but also that there does need to be a focus on on righteousness and and drawing closer to God. You know, being a Christian isn't just about saying, well, I've been saved by grace and now I'm going to be an antinomian and I'm not going to do anything. You know, I'm good. I'm just going to uh, run red lights all day and, you know, go to the liquor store. <laughs> Sorry, Matthew, that wasn't a knock against you. Uh, <laughs> Wait, did you see me at the liquor store again? I did. No, I'm just kidding. Um, what, what's that joke about Baptists hey, seeing each wait, other at the liquor store? Wait, what kind of Baptist did you say you were earlier? A, a peculiar Baptist? Because <laughs> I think a, a Baptist at a liquor store would be a peculiar Baptist. <laughs> no, particular Baptist. I'm very particular about the alcohol I buy. <laughs> Partick liquor? What? <laughs> Partick liquor Baptist. Particular Baptist. Oh, boy. Oh. Sorry, Michael, were you, did you have anything to add still? You know, I completely like don't even remember what I was saying now. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, I forgot to. Yeah. Anyways, what are your thoughts on this? I'm curious to know. Yeah, and Matthew, I, as, you, as you go into your thoughts, um, mm-hmm. I was curious about why you asked the question, um, do you think this command was limited to, this, to the disciples or does it apply to the whole church? So if you can touch on that as well, I'd be curious. Yeah, so um, it's generally been understood in history, I think, that this, it's called the Great Commission, is given not just to the disciples, but to the entire church. And that what is in what Jesus is commanding is making disciples and baptizing them in water. However, I've known some people who were very, had some very strange ideas who were convinced that it was basically limited to this command was limited to the apostles, just them. And Um, that either baptizing them was baptizing them by water or that the command to baptize them was not to baptize them by water, but to baptize them by teaching them the word, you know, like a spiritual baptism kind of thing. So it's just interesting because you'll meet certain people who claim to be Christian and they have these very strange views about passages, you know, and I think that's why it's so important. You know, I hold the sola scriptura, this idea, this, the, the doctrine that the only thing that's God breathed is scripture is the Bible. Every other source is not God-breathed that we have access to us today. And so because of that fact, Scripture is the only source available to the Christian church now that is infallible. So it's the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church. Um, But that doesn't mean that other sources are not useful. So when we look to the past 2,000 years, you know, we see that this has basically been understood to be speaking to the entire church, not just to the disciples. And... um, and that this is also saying that it's speaking of water baptism, not simply just preaching the word. So um, I brought that up just because, you know, some people, a lot of times when people deconstruct, you know, past viewpoints, past religious beliefs, sometimes they can deconstruct it down to the atom level where it's like, okay, I'm going to have a certain level of skepticism about anything in the scriptures or anything that came before me. And I'm going to reinvent the wheel from the ground up and out. And that can be really dangerous if you go that far. Um, if you just completely ignore what every, everybody has said before, what everything has come before us, you know, say, Oh, well, it's all Roman Catholic, you know, so it was all wrong. You know, we talked a little bit about that earlier, but you know, some things just because you were in a false religion doesn't mean that everything taught in that false religion was false. So I kind of wanted to point point that out i didn't think it would be a huge point of discussion but it's yeah it is interesting to uh to talk about i think yeah that's interesting you mentioned that some people view this as as a command to only the disciples and and then some even further to to say that it doesn't have to do with water baptism which is which is interesting because i i wonder what that person would do with like acts 8 philip and the ethiopian eunuch right see there see there is water here um so that yeah that that view would break out break down pretty quickly i would think yeah yeah it turned out that, uh, you know, the more we talked to him that he denied the Trinity and a lot of other stuff. So, mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, like that was kind of the first thing that made me ra- raise my eyebrow. And I'm like, hmm, not so sure about this guy. And then when he went, he went full blown, uh, anti-Trinitarian, I was like, okay, well, yeah, my suspicions were correct. <laughs> mm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought you might be going in the direction of, um, like where Paul is, is talking about, you know, that some, some, some are boasting that they're of Apollos, some are, you know, and, and he's trying to kind of put down that, you know, you're not baptized into, 
into us. You're baptized into mm. Christ kind of idea. And, um, and he says, you know, I'm basically I'm, I'm thankful that I, that I'm not called to baptize or I'm not, I don't go out to baptize, right. Or that I haven't baptized any of you. Um, I thought you might be going in that direction, you know, suggesting that there, you know, there were some in the early church that maybe were evangelists only and, and didn't baptize people within the local churches. Well, it's interesting because that passage was brought up by Bavink when I was reading his section as a being a point against re- baptism or regeneration, because Paul said, I was taught not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, you know, but a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of times people consider baptism as the gospel, as, you know, like in this passage, even Lutherans and others will see, I mean, I'm not speaking down to Lutherans, but they interpret this passage where it says making disciples of all nations. Mm-hmm. Some, some Lutherans will see that they will see baptize, sorry, they will see baptism as actually fulfilling that command to make disciples. When you baptize them, you are making them disciples, you know, mm-hmm. in baptism, you are giving them faith. You are saving them. So in the actual act of baptism, you are making them into disciples. So it's interesting that in such a passage that seems straightforward, that there's so many different ways to understand things. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I brought it up. Um, I was, uh, so yeah, I do agree that it, it is important. I think the most important thing, uh, is to be baptized in the name, as you said, of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, not names, a single name. And I think that's a really strong indication of the Trinity, excuse me, of the Trinity, that the singular God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh or Jehovah, as some transliterate it, this is the God of Scripture. And we're baptized in the name of this God, who is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in a single God. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I mean, now that I'm, you know, born again and then read all these passages, I, it's hard not to read these kinds of things and see the Trinity all over the place. And I think this is an example of that. Um, it's just, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? How when we were LDS, we, we couldn't see that at all. I mean, you actually, when you do baptisms, when you're Latter-day Saint, you actually say those exact words to, I baptize you in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy ghost. And even in the act of saying that it just never connects. Yeah, I was, well, there is some legitimacy to this idea that in the name of meaning authority of like, you know, there's a debate about whether to be baptized in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit. And there are some groups that believe that no, the correct way to do it is to baptize in the name of Jesus uh, because that's done in acts. I forget the passage, but um, there's a really great article on that on uh, Matt Slick's website karm.org where he talks about how this is this isn't giving you a formula in that acts passage where they were baptizing in the name of jesus they were just it's it's they were baptizing in the name of meaning in the authority of jesus so i think that's kind of how i understood it when i was a latter-day saint it's like oh we're not actually saying that god has one name we're saying that we have the authority from god to baptize you know so that's that's kind of how i understood it but i think in this passage in the great commission jesus is giving a formula um the Trinitarian formula for baptism. So I think, but, but, but I do agree that, that reading this and seeing that, seeing it now, rather than seeing it and seeing it so many times before, I mean, how many times did we do baptisms for the dead in the temple? You know, you, you do like 30 baptisms or something and you don't really think of it. So yeah, it is interesting. So, so here's a question that pops up about this verse here. So say you, you got baptized at a Christian church, but they didn't say those words. They just said, uh, you know, do you, do you accept Christ as your savior? And then you say, yes. And then they just say like buried like Jesus. And then they dunk you. Do you need to be baptized again? I'm asking for a friend. That's kind of a question. I think uh, that I would leave up to the elders of the church. I think they might have different ideas. I think some churches, I think a lot of churches probably would require being baptized specifically in the name of the father and of the son and the Holy spirit. But I think that's an okay. elder decision ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I I think my my pretty consistent uh, interaction with this passage and it, and its use within the church is that that uh, Christian baptism is done in that Trinitarian formula. What's interesting is very very short side note in the Eastern Church, they, in the very early church, they used to do trine baptisms. They would actually immerse people three times into water, and they still do that in the Eastern Orthodox Church when they. Mm-hmm baptize infants they don't they immerse them three times and for the father the son and the holy spirit so mormons do that sometimes when the toe comes up (laughs) (laughs) all right that was a great discussion uh anything else before we move on no i was gonna i was gonna bring up an additional thing but we probably don't have much time left um 
I was going to bring up the fact that Mark 16 also gives a great commission, but it also says, uh, verse 16, whoever, so, okay, I'll just read the whole thing. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And that's kind of controversial because there's manuscript evidence that say that maybe the longer ending of Mark is not original. Um, but assuming it is original, do you think, do you, either of you have any issues with that verse, which says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Does this mean that everybody has to be baptized to be saved? I mean, I don't, I just don't think that it is specific enough to really be a problem because it doesn't go into addressing, you know, anybody who believes but isn't baptized you know it's, it's just kind of assumed that if you believe you will get baptized and i think that's pretty um consistent with my viewpoint yeah it's it, it's interesting that it, it does say whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will not be saved right um it doesn't say whoever does not believe and is not baptized will not be saved um so does that mean that belief and baptism are necessary uh, or does it mean that belief is necessary, right? Which would, which would fit with what you see within the rest of the scriptures um, because it's the, it's the negation of whoever does not believe will not be saved. That, that kind of stands out there. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think that's the, that's the huge demarcation. It's not the baptism itself, but whether you believe or not. And I think, and we've already discussed how normatively baptism is to be received in the church and it's only extenuating circumstances that should prevent somebody from being baptized, whether they, you know, the thief on the cross, he was obviously dying next to Christ. So he didn't have a chance to be baptized, but normatively, once you believe, then you're baptized and added to the church. It's all kind of a, it's all part and parcel with becoming a disciple of Christ. Right. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about um, this idea that baptism is necessary, right, at least it's taken very literally within the LDS church so much so that they, they perform baptisms for the dead for people. Right. I've talked about on, on the podcast going to the temple as a, as a teenager to do that where, where my parents were working in the baptistry in the temple and, you know, spending Thursday evenings with them there. And you think about what goes into that. Um, Right, because you have people working to do the name extractions um, in, within family history and submit those names to the temple, and then all of the ordinances within the temple are done on behalf of those those names and recorded, um, almost as if God doesn't know who are His without the LDS Church recording who has been baptized in the temple. Right? It's it's just. Again, it's one of those things when you think about the theological implications of that, those um, ordinances that they're doing uh, vicariously, um, it, it just becomes very weird because the suggestion is God doesn't know who are his without it. And that's just kind of a an odd suggestion. Yeah, it is. And I've been told too, you know, you asked the question, well, what about people whose names were misspelled or mispronounced? And then mm-hmm. I've kind of just been told, well, that'll all be fixed in the millennium. We just have to do our best right now. Don't worry about it kind of a thing. Yeah. And I remember I asked in, in the groups one time, you know, what about those people who are baptized and accept it, but then apostatize later in in spirit prison? Like, why don't you ever do rebaptisms for the dead? And And that wasn't a very popular uh, question. So and you're up. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, so, so the millennium is a giant database cleanup. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yep. Yeah. They're going to run a whole bunch of batch files to uh, <laughs> yeah. clean up our, <laughs> our networks and our databases and everything. Yeah. It, it's kind of sounds stressful, doesn't it? Um, that's something that, that kind of came to my mind today is how stressful heaven sounds in mormonism like i was thinking about you know heavenly father in mormonism when he lost a third of his children i'm like that must have been stressful and it's like at least i don't have to deal with stress after this life at all yeah Yeah, i do i do think that there will be things we'll be doing of course but yeah i agree that i've 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 heard some members say that in the millennium the temple will be running day and night to get everything done 
So we will discuss several passages of scripture that we often used as Latter-day Saints to demonstrate that without exception, baptism is saving, i.e. redeeming, forgiving, cleansing, etc., ordinance, which is necessary to receive eternal life unless one passes away before the age of accountability. So the first passage is Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So in your opinion, continuing our discussion about um, baptism and regeneration or what we view baptism as accomplishing, what do you think Peter could possibly be teaching in this passage? And how might you understand this passage and how might it be understood from other perspectives? So, um, Michael, would you like to start off? Sure. I'm, I'm going to give you guys a real life example here. I was talking to an LDS missionary um, probably about a year ago, and we were going through Romans chapter 4, and we got all the way to the end, and I'm just going to read this here, but uh, basically starting in in verse 21, you know, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So I kind of showing him that, you know, imputation occurs when we believe. And he, you know, he's a real, real talkative elder. And he kind of got real quiet, quieter than I'd ever seen him get. And just didn't, didn't know what to say. was just, you know, cornered by what the verses, what the chapter here says in Romans four. And then he just kind of lit up and he used the exact verse that you just shared, Matthew, um, Peter saying, repent, uh, repent and be baptized, you know, for the forgiveness of sins. And he's like, what about that? And at the time I didn't know what to say, you know, just felt like the scriptures, you know, were almost contradicting each other. I'm like, okay, I don't quite understand how to get around this. But uh, I guess one perspective that I've kind of seen is uh, what the word, you know, for could mean. You know, one way is is to say directly, I'm being baptized to obtain forgiveness. But then the other way to to look at it that I think makes more sense is doing it because of something that you have, you know. And I've got this from got questions, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to do a shout out here, but you know, it kind of says like, if you have a headache, you take medicine for that headache. You don't take medicine to obtain the headache, but because you have one. And so it suggested there that we are baptized for forgiveness of our sins because we've already obtained that forgiveness of our sins. Yeah. Can I, can I jump in and add to that too? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, on Carm, I really like Matt Slick's stuff. I think he's uh, – some people don't like him for his attitude, but I think he's a brilliant guy, and I've called in on his show and asked him questions, and he's he's really great and really knowledgeable. And he has a, a page on this on baptism in Acts 2.38. So he gets into the Greek a little bit. He said the verb translated to be baptized is the indirect passive imperative, which is a command to receive, hence passive voice in Greek, of baptizo, which does not give it the same direct – command implied in repent the preposition for in the phrase for the remission of sins in greek is ice unto or into and it is in the accusative case direct object it can mean for the purpose of identifying you with the remission of sins it is the same preposition we find in first corinthians 10 2 in the phrase and were baptized unto moses he says note that both contexts are dealing with baptism and identification in first corinthians 10 2 the people were baptized or spiritually identifying themselves with the purposes and vision of Moses. So it's kind of going what you said. It's not, it's not necessarily saying that repent and be baptized to receive in the future, the forgiveness of your sins. It's repent to be baptized to be identified with the forgiveness of sins or the remission of sins. So it's kind of like baptism, repentance, you know, this is tied into the whole, the sign and the symbolism of washing away of sins, forgiveness of sins. So Peter's commanding them to, to hourly partake in the sacrament so that you can be visually, physically, sacramentally identified with remission of sins. Yeah, that, that's great. And I remember I've actually uh, read all that from Carm as well. That all sounded really familiar. So it's just been a while. That's all Greek to me, though. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought that was great the way he explained it. Uh, did you have anything else to add to that, Michael? 
Um, not really. No, just wanted to throw that out there. No, that's great. Thank you. Uh, Paul, what about you? Yeah, so I'm going to take this passage in a little bit different direction. So we talked earlier about how sometimes uh, those who engage in witnessing the Latter-day Saints will encounter Latter-day Saints using certain passages of, of the Bible as proof texts and will have to, you know, they'll take a contrary position like, well, it can't mean that, you know, and then they're responding directly to the way in which the, the Latter-day Saint is using the passage rather than maybe digging into the passage. And Matthew, you brought up the point that, you know, sometimes when when someone has left a, a faith tradition and, and is kind of goes into in the mode of I'm going to rebuild from the ground up, right? In in terms of what what they believe the the scriptures say, and and like you said, they take almost a position of of, of extreme skepticism with with regard to everything. Um, and I think I think as as guys who have left the latter day saint faith, right? We we were taught to use this passage in a particular way, in the way that the young elder that Michael was talking to used it, right? This is used as a proof text to show, hey, you have to repent and be baptized to be saved. And that's the purpose that Latter-day Saints take this scripture and, and point it at people and say, see, this, this supports what we believe about baptism. Um, but if you actually look at the passage, and then this is something that didn't even stick out to me until today, right, when, we were, when I was kind of preparing for this. If you look at the passage, it says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. And this is, this is following his, his big sermon, right, that he's given um, on the day of Pentecost, Right. And and so the people, the men and brethren are pricked in their hearts. They ask him, what shall we do? Right. And he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and Latter-day Saints stop there. Right. And or maybe they go on to and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Right. Yep. Full stop right there. See, baptism is necessary. Um, but if you go on, it says for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The passage ends with the same type of language you find in John 6.46, right? No one can come to me except the Father draws him, right? So it's, it's interesting that, that that part of that this passage I don't see talked about very much when it gets used. Um, and like I said, I think it's sometimes because you're, people are just reacting to how the Latter-day Saint that they're dialoguing with is using it. And Latter-day Saints are only using it in the way that they've been taught to use it. But if you look at the end of the passage, it's like, whoa, um, it's for everyone who has been called by God to faith, right? Uh, It's not that this passage is a proof text of you repent and you baptize, you do these things of your own free will and you're saved. Um, no, these, this is th- these are things that the people whom God is calling to himself are going to do. And, that's, and the evidence of that is that the, the men and brethren who are asking Peter this question say, what shall we do? They are being called. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I kind of didn't want to bring that up immediately because, you know, like, oh, you're a Calvinist and you're calling, you know, you got to bring that up. But uh, <laughs> I'm glad you saw that too, because yeah, when once I started learning the doctrine of grace and, and I reread that passage, the same, that's what stuck out to me too. It's like, anytime you, you see the word call or election or chosen or something like that, it just like immediately sticks out to you and you want to understand what that passage is saying. And uh, yeah, very good, Paul. Thank you very much. Um, I agree with a lot of what's already been said. Um, one thing too is like, um, I think I remember hearing James White preaching on this passage and the context is, you know, Peter is talking to Jews. A lot of them are, probably afraid because they are convicted. They, many of them were there probably, or some of them were there probably when Christ was put to death. We don't really know, but um, they're probably worried that they've cut themselves off from God. You know, they were the covenant people and knowing that they put to death their Messiah, they're probably scared and unsure of what's going to happen. So instead of condemning them and saying, you have no chance, you killed your savior, you killed your God, you know, he, he gives them this promise, this very powerful promise that shows that God has not cut them off, that they, that God is still, he's still offering the gospel to everybody. And to those who will accept it and turn to Christ in faith, you know, they will be, they will be saved. But yeah, but the, the promise, 
the promise is if you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. And as Paul said, those who are called, God is drawing to himself. They should repent and be baptized. And, and that's honestly, this is also a point of contention because I know that my, my Reformed Pedo-Baptist friends will use this as evidence that we need infant baptism. But as you brought up, Paul, I think it's stronger for uh, credo baptism for believers baptism because it does have this this word calling and the promise is not just to be baptized there are promises that if you repent and be baptized you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and so i think it's kind of a package deal to say that um that if we come and repent and we are baptized and we are united with christ then that means our children are worthy of of receiving the covenant sign of baptism i don't see that from this text what i see is that Yes, your children, they also have this promise, but the promise, you can't chop the promise up into smaller pieces. You can't say they don't need to be repent. They can be baptized as long as they're a child of a believer. I see it as your children who are also Jewish, you know, they're part of the covenant people of Israel. If they repent and turn to Christ, be baptized, they will receive forgiveness of sins too. And going back to the context where they were afraid if they were cut off from Christ. Well, you probably remember from the the condemnation of Jesus with, uh, was it with Pilate where they were saying, you know, what should I do with your King? It was, it was Pilate, right? Yep. That was Pilate. There were, there were, there, there were Jews in the crowd that were shouting, you know, kill him and let his blood be on us and on our children. And so some, some commentators think that this specific promise is promising them. You're not cut off. You and your children are not cut off. The promises for you and your children. So there's still there's still redemption available to you. You just but what you need to do is repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness. And so it's kind of helping them with with that fear that oh, you know, because of what we said in condemning Jesus, you know, where we have no chance because we said put this this sin on us and our children. So it's it's showing that God is still merciful and he's still reaching out and offering his redemption to those who who come to him. So it's a if you read this whole passage, this whole chapter, it's really, it's, it's not as it's, it's, it's kind of a little bit manipulative or deceptive. And I don't think everybody does it that way with ill intention, but to kind of just pluck these two verses out, out of the entire context. And this just this interesting uh, speech that Peter is giving and to say, see here, you have to be baptized. Absolutely. No question. You know, it's, it's kind of, I don't think it's really doing justice to the text. So, uh, I was hoping that, you know, in discussing this together and sharing it with Latter-day Saints, hopefully that'll kind of help them to understand that uh, it's not quite exactly the way we used it when we were missionaries, but, but it's, but it's certainly not saying that baptism is not necessary or that's not important. It, it certainly is important, but, but uh, yeah. So do either of you have any more thoughts on that? Nope. I think we covered it pretty good. Sometimes I, I, I go around a thought and I hope that if I just keep going around and around, I'll hit the center sometimes. And then I, sometimes I don't. So, uh, <laughs> I just, yeah, maybe, maybe just a question. Sure. Um, so there are some, we're still, we're still looking at acts two thirty eight and 39, right? Correct. Yeah. So there are some people who say that, uh, and, and, and this is where some people differ with, with the position that we've kind of put out there that, you know, regeneration precedes faith. There's some people who look at this passage and say that it um, it makes clear that baptism is the time at which sins are forgiven and um, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift of the Holy Spirit is actually the regenerating Holy Spirit, right? So how would you respond to somebody who, who might make that argument from this passage? So, I mean, I would go straight to uh, the story of Cornelius and and Peter going and talking to them because it says that the Holy, the gift of the Holy ghost actually uses the word gift. The gift of the Holy ghost fell upon them and there was clearly no baptism Mm -hmm. that took place there. And I think that's a really tough thing for a Latter-day Saint to explain is how did these people have the gift of the, of the Holy spirit without that baptism? Because I don't think that's really a possibility in Mormonism, it has to follow that exact formula. You know, you repent, then you get baptized, and then you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Yeah, that's good. What about you, Matthew? Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about that, and I I think Michael's answer was very good. Sometimes I wonder, though, if, you know, if Latter-day Saints, if we use another passage of Scripture to kind of eliminate a possible alternative 
interpretation that they might say, no, let's just stick to this text. You know what I mean? I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Like, no, I don't want to talk about that. I just want to talk about this one. Um, but I would kind of go back to what we uh, discussed earlier about how um, being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It's like for to being identified for the forgiveness of sins. So it's like the command is to repent and be baptized. And this baptism is identified with the forgiveness of sins. And um, so this receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, I don't think it necessarily, I mean, I guess we, it's not wrong to refer to other passages because we do certainly see people who, who repent and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit before they're baptized. So, I mean, I think I agree with Walt, with uh, Michael there and how he would do it, but, but it, there's nothing in here to say that, that baptism is what limits you to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying, repent, be baptized, you will receive the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit also follows repentance. It follows faith. So, and since we've talked about how all of it is kind of a package deal, when somebody hears the word, the preaching of the word, they accept the word with gladness, with faith, repentance, then it's almost typically immediately they're baptized, you know, and they're, and they're enter the church. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's all a package deal. So to where you can't, you can't separate each part of each part out into little pieces, you know? So I think when Peter promises this, he's not saying you can't have the spirit unless you're baptized. He's, he's just saying, turn to Christ, repent, you'll receive the Holy spirit. And part of that is being baptized. So I don't, is, is that clear or did I just make it more confusing? Um, I think, I think Matthew bringing up really good points too. I mean, I think, the weakness with what I was just saying is, you know, I pull out another scripture that says the opposite or seems to say the opposite to a Latter-day Saint. I'm basically just saying that the Bible contradicts itself. Like that's all they're going to see. And so I think that what really would need to happen is we'd have to take your approach and then take my approach afterwards and, and kind of do both, like actually address the scripture that, that they're talking about and then show another scripture to uh, confirm what we're saying. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, sorry, Matthew, if you have something to follow on that, go ahead. No, 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 no I didn't. I was just agreeing. Um, I think what, I think the challenge is, uh, you know, that sometimes we face in, in conversing with Latter-day Saints about these topics is that um, there's, because of the, because of the Latter-day Saint tradition uh, and the emphasis they place on a lay priesthood, um, there's, there's almost like a, there's almost like a view sometimes that if if someone is a seminary trained uh, minister or apologist that they are I don't know what's what's the word I might look for for a Latter Day Saint uh, that they're doing priestcraft priestcraft or, or yeah yeah something like that um, indoctrination maybe is that kind of no not about? not indoctrination but. Um, Oh, there's a word and I can't find it right now. Maybe, maybe I'll stumble onto it as I, as I keep talking, but, but there's almost this view that uh, of untrustworthiness, right. Of, of someone who has, has been seminary trained because they're they're It's almost like they're, tr- they view them as trusting in the arm of flesh um, to teach them what, what the scriptures say rather than going to God. Right. Because it's, the, the LDS view is everybody can go directly to God and, and understand, understand the scripture. That's why they have the, the gift of the Holy ghost. Right. And so, um, there's almost like this mistrust of, of, of someone who is, who has been seminary trained and, and, you know, part partially because of that, you know, on the podcast, I, I haven't talked much about the fact that I am seminary trained and, and, and have an MDiv in, in biblical studies. Um, but I, I think it, it goes to one of the challenges that we, that we face is, is that, you know, there, there are solid principles of, of biblical interpretation that the church has developed and, and understood for centuries, right? And so one of the, one of the principles, those are referred to as, as hermeneutics, right? How you, how you treat the text. And, and one, of the, one of the principles of, of hermeneutics is that you don't, make a, you don't build a doctrine on a single passage, right? You, you do have to take into, into consideration the, the whole counsel of the word of God. Right. And so when you look at a passage like Acts 2, 38 and 39, and you try to make the case that it's talking about the Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit here as something that comes with baptism, therefore regeneration happens at baptism. Um, you, you run into the problem of, as, as Michael pointed out, that there's other passages, passages that indicate that people had the gift of the Holy Ghost fall on them 
without baptism, prior to baptism. And you also run into the problem of, of having to deal with uh, John 6, 46 and, and other passages that talk about the, the call of God happening prior to baptism. So um, it's just, it's just one of those things where you, you, it's a challenge sometimes to, to discuss these things with Latter-day Saints, because they do want to kind of focus on this one passage that they've been taught to use as a, as a proof text. And, um, and sometimes it's just challenging to get beyond that with them and, and, and say, Hey, let's, let's look at everything that, that the word of God has to say on this, because, um, all of that comes into play and should come into play as we, as we build our understanding of what God has, has taught us within the scripture. Yeah, that's great. That's really great insight. I wanted, I was going to bring up in the next part, um, because we, I mean, we've mentioned that we don't believe in baptismal regeneration, but I didn't want to make our friends feel left out by discounting other, you know, an interpretation that could allow for baptismal regeneration, even though we disagree with it. You know, others would say that it does teach that, but I think maybe I'll bring that up in when we talk about John three. Um, is there anything else would you'd like to bring up before we move on? Nope. Yeah, you guys got some great insights. I really, really appreciate it. So an additional passage used by LDS to demonstrate the absolute necessity of baptism is John chapter three, verses three through five. Uh, quote, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So how would you explain possible understandings of this text? And I think it's uh, Paul's turn. Yeah, so I think first thing to kind of get out there, right, is is that as a Latter Day Saint, um, when this passage was used as a proof text, what I understood the teaching to be was that uh, when Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless the unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God." The way I was intended to read that as a Latter Day Saint was, unless one is baptized, born of water. And receives the gift of the Holy Ghost by laying out of hands, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is that is that consistent with the way you understood Latter-day Saint teaching on this passage, the two of you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that's exactly how I would, I understood it. So um, one of the things that that was interesting to me as I as I studied through this as part of my um, seminary studies in in working through a a theology course is that the context is important, right? The context of what Nicodemus says to Jesus is important, right? He's asking specifically, he misunderstands, well, the Latter-day Saint perspective would be that he misunderstands Jesus, right? When Jesus is talking about being born again, um, because they see being born of water as as baptism, but Nicodemus is asking kind of a, a, a good question, right? Like, how can how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water. And, and my theology professor talked about this kind of at length in one of our classes that, you know, given the context, it's wholly possible here that Jesus is talking about, you know, the the, the birth water when, when, a, when a woman's water uh, breaks, um, you know, unless one is born of water, right, that the natural birth that every one of us goes through. And the spirit later, right? That that regeneration of the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Does that does that understanding make sense to you guys, or do you think that's off base? Well, I'll give you my perspective when I was a Latter Day Saint, because people use that argument on me, and I thought that it was incredibly weak as a Mormon, because I I just say, how can you say that that is you know talking about birth? Which is ironic because in Mormonism, you know, if, if you've been born, it means you kept your first estate. And so it actually is doctrinally sound to say that as a Mormon, that it's talking about birth. It, it is a possible um, way to see that. Um, but I think even now, I, I still have a hard time saying that that's what that's talking about because it just feels unnecessary for Jesus to say you have to be physically born because anybody who ever reads this has been physically born so it just seems i don't know a little bit redundant or unnecessary to mention it so i I guess i want to know how you would answer that charge yeah so i would say that 
Jesus begins the passage by saying that unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then you get Nicodemus, Nicodemus's clarifying questions, right? Where he's thinking about natural birth. And Jesus then clarifies for him, you know, yes, everyone has to be born naturally of their, of their mother, but I'm talking about the spirit birth, right? That's, that's what has to happen to see the kingdom of God. The person has to be born of the spirit. And that's consistent with, um, with the rest of the New Testament teaching on regeneration and, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the con- both the context of the passage and, and of what Jesus truly is talking about in this passage make that, that explanation make sense. Yeah, I think it's way stronger when you do explain the context around it because, you know, I would have people not explain the context and just say, oh, that's talking about, you know, embryonic fluids or or whatever. And I'm like, "Uh, seriously, that that doesn't make any sense. But Mm -hmm. yeah, in the context, it does make sense. And it's a much stronger argument that way. Mm -hmm. And I think think what's interesting, going back to the point I made earlier, right, about Alma 5 and the kind of the – the linear uh, process that's given there, right? Do you, have you felt that mighty change of heart? If so, um, come and be baptized, right? Is what Alma is preaching in the Book of Mormon. And if if you're going to hold to that and then try to take this passage to be born of water equals baptism and the spirit equals gift of the Holy Ghost, then you're, you're kind of turning Alma 5 on its head and what it presents as the, as the, logical process of conversion yeah that's true something i was going to bring up earlier but i forgot but then you just reminded me is something that i always found interesting well at least when i started questioning the lds church i didn't really notice until then um one of my favorite chapters when i was latter-day saying was doctrine and covenants chapter 20 it was kind of like it was i think it was added on to over time but it was originally supposedly like you know when they instituted the church this was kind of like almost the church constitution sort of set forth like all the different church offices and baptism and everything. So if you go to verse 37 um, in Doctrine and Covenants chapter 20, it says, and again, by way of commandment to the church concerning the matter of baptism, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins shall be received by baptism into his church. And I think it goes along with what you're saying, Paul, is that it's interesting because it always seemed like in Latter-day Saint theology, I believed that you could have the spirit only temporarily before baptism. You know, it might come and go, but if you want the spirit all the time and you want to have forgiveness of sins and you want to be, you know, have the Holy ghost with you and to, and to be in Christ, you have to be baptized. But this passage says, that you need to show by your works that you have exercised faith and repentance in Christ and that you already have received the spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins. So that also seems to follow more the Acts 10 route rather than what I seem to remember as a Latter-day Saint. You know, this seems a lot more in line with, you know, Orthodox Christianity than LDS theology, at least I think. I don't know how you both feel. It says that it basically sounds like you need to show that you've already been forgiven of your sins before you can even be baptized. Yeah, Let's I mean, see. that sounds like... Oh, go ahead, Paul. No, you go. I was just going to say, it seems like the same idea that you have in, in Moroni 10, 32. You know, you have to deny yourselves of all godliness, and then his grace is sufficient for you. It's kind of a problem. What, what were you going to say about it, Paul? I was going to ask if you you have in front of you what the, what the date is for Doctrine and Covenants 20. I think it was 1830 when they instituted, or when they started the church. Hmm. But uh, hold on. Yeah, it said it was, quote-unquote, likely recorded soon after April 6th, 1830. So, yeah. That's interesting. So I was going um, to bring this up uh, earlier, but I think this is a good place to kind of kind of drop this in. So, because um, we, we opened the, the episode, right, with, with articles of, Article of Faith 4, right? And um, it kind of lays out, let me, let me pull that up. It kind of lays out uh, the the first principles and ordinances, right, of, of the gospel and the way that it's presented there. Um, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, repentance. Third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, right? And so that that kind of order um, still is, is, as you were kind of pointing out with, with um, 
DNC 20 still is kind of, um, how, how did you put it, Matthew? It's, it's more of a reformed kind of view, right? Yeah. Faith, faith comes first, uh, then repentance, then baptism, um, and then the gift of the Holy Ghost. Um, but it, it kind of places the gift of the Holy Ghost last, which I think is, is, is kind of interesting because the, the, the order that you laid out in DNC 20 um, is a little bit counter to that. Right. And that's the, that's the point you were making about DNC 20, because it almost makes it seems like you have to show evidence that you've, you've received uh, the, the, the spirit of Christ, right. Which um, the new Testament refers to the Holy spirit as the spirit of Christ. So it's almost like that, that temporally precedes uh, baptism. Um, but I think what's interesting about this article of faith is that, and that's why I, this is, this is why I asked about the, the dating on, on DNC 20, because one of the things I think is interesting about Joseph Smith is he, he was a cultural sponge, right? He just kind of picked up things that uh, were going on around him and repackaged them and, and presented them as revelation, right? He does that with the Masonic temple or the Masonic ceremony and in, in, in the temple. Um, and he does that with, with lots of other things. Um, but this, this article of faith is one of the things that he did that with, right? So this is, this is, this article of faith comes to be, comes about as part of the Wentworth letter um, that he writes to um, that Chicago newspaper man. Right. And that's, that's where we get the articles of faith, um, which follows their, the churches, the LDS churches moved to Kirtland, Ohio, where he encounters Sidney Rigdon and a lot of Campbellite teaching. Um, and what's interesting about that is that um, there's a, there's a Campbellite preacher who was, uh, an evangelist who was very, very popular in Northern Ohio um, in the same way that Rigdon was before Rigdon joined Mormonism. And his name was Walter Scott. And he had this, uh, what the, what he called like the five finger exercise that he would use to teach people, um, school children about, um, about the gospel and how you, how you come to be converted. Right. And so he would start with his thumb and be like, it's faith, repentance, baptism, remission of sins and gift of the Holy ghost. So in his, in his um, exercise, there were five things, right? Remission of sins was kind of a, a separate thing from baptism, but it's it's based on Acts 2.38, right? Which we've been talking about. But it's just interesting that, you know, Joseph Smith, when he writes the Articles of Faith, he, he just kind of slides that same um, exercise into Article of Faith 4, um, like, like he did with a lot of other stuff as a cultural sponge, um, because he had you know, he'd been through Kirtland at that point and had, had kind of soaked up that, that Campbellite theology uh, from Rigdon and from, from just being among people who joined Mormonism from, from uh, the Campbellite movement. So anyway, I just find that interesting. And, and it's, uh, that's why I asked about the dating on Doctrine and Covenants 20, because it's different than, than both Article of Faith 4 and, uh, and Walter Scott's kind of way he lays it out. Yeah, no, that's great. That's interesting. Um, I was going to, so I was going to add just a little bit to what we already talked about and say that, um, so Paul, I, I kind of came to, when I, when I see this passage, I'm not entirely sure hundred percent what view I take. Um, I, I came to that, to that understanding, like you said that, it, you know, he says being born of water and of the spirit, he's saying, you know, like you've already been born once the natural birth, but you have to be born the spirituals birth. So I, I could see that as definitely a possibility um also i see probably another one of the stronger interpretations is that um again jesus is talking to nicodemus he's a he's um part of the sanhedrin right and so he's very knowledgeable on scripture you know he's a teacher of the law he he, he knows scripture you know front and back and so and this is kind of why jesus says he kind of rebukes him a little bit and he says truly truly i say to you you need to be born again and so when Jesus says that you must be born of water and the spirit, um, this might invoke some imagery from the old Testament. So there's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36, um, where it says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, uh, put a new spirit. Oh, hold on. Sorry. I lost my place. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, uh, oh, sorry, I keep, I keep messing up on this and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be, 
careful to observe my ordinances. So going back to the beginning, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. So I think there's this possibility of when Jesus is pointing out uh, being born of water and of the spirit, it's not speaking of two different births. Uh, you know, a lot of times I think in uh, Jewish thought, they would use s- synonyms to kind of bolster the imagery or, or make it more forceful or, or strong in the, in the person's mind. So when he said being born of water and the spirit, it's not talking about two different things. He's, he's kind of just reemphasizing the same rebirth, the same spiritual rebirth. Um, and he continues on and he doesn't talk about being born of water again. He only, he only mentions that once basically in verse five. And he continues on and says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Uh, he continues, I do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And so a lot of reformed, uh, traditional, a lot of reformed commentators, they see this passage, this being born again, it's the sovereign work of God, the monergistic work of God, meaning it's God's work alone. Being born again is the work of the spirit in our heart and it's not through baptism. And the the latter part of that passage seems to point towards that evidence where it says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So this being born of the spirit, being born of the water and of the spirit, it's the work of God in our hearts. It's a work of regeneration. Um, and we don't know it's, it's on God's timing when we're regenerated. Uh, someone could hear the, the preaching of the word for months, years, decades, and at God's will, they'll be born again. And it kind of reminds you of the blowing of the wind. You feel the wind on your face. You, you might be able to tell the, the, the direction, but you don't know where it came from. You don't know what caused the wind. You just feel it. And so I think that's a stronger case for the monergistic regeneration in the heart of the Holy Spirit, not through water baptism, but just through the work of God. You, you feel it. You, you feel new. You feel different. You feel renewed. You feel changed, but you don't know how. You don't know where. You don't know when necessarily exactly, but it's, it's, it's the work of God in you. So I think that's, kind of, that's the, the interpretation that I kind of lean towards is that this water of the Spirit is not two separate births, but it's speaking overall of the cleansing regenerating washing work of God on the the inner heart of the, of the fallen man to change him into a completely new creation. Yeah. I think, I think that's interesting. I, um, you know, I, I mentioned I'm a, I'm a, a biblical studies guy, right? So there's, there's always kind of a, a, a discussion, you know, like how, how do you, how do you interpret the Bible? Is it, is it biblical theology or is it systematic theology? You know, there's kind of this, this, wrestling that goes on between bibs and, and, and the systematics. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of fall on the, on the, the biblical theology side, because um, my, my position is that when you're interpreting scripture, biblical theology should drive your systematics, right? Um, you should have a solid understanding of the context and the, and the genre of the writing that you're looking at. So I, I, I think what you presented there it is interesting that, that Jesus might be referring back to the to the Old Testament, and that's certainly um, that certainly would be consistent with with what he says to Nicodemus when he kind of upbraids him and says, you know, you're you're a teacher in Israel and you don't understand this stuff. Um, so it could be, it definitely could be that. Um, I when he goes on to say, you know, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Um, you know, I see that as kind of uh, consistent with the, you know, that the born of water is, is referring to, um, to natural birth and, and, you know, consistent with the context of, of Nicodemus's questions, but, um, definitely I'll have to dig in more to, to that reference you gave from, from the old Testament from Ezekiel. Right. So, um, and see how that might interact with this, with this passage. So interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely, I definitely see the way you see it as a possibility. That's why I kind of say, I'm like, well, I see validity to, to several views. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, either, either way, I don't think there's really a wrong, you know, among the two or three ways that I think we talked about a little bit, I don't think there's a wrong way to see it or, or in such a way that would negatively impact your understanding of the rest of scripture. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely, I think the LDS view is definitely wrong, especially with that, that verse you shared, Matthew, where he says, you know, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. 
you know, I was thinking in, in Mormonism, everyone who's born of the spirit, you know exactly where they came from. And that is that system that Joseph Smith gave, you know, repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And this definitely seems to speak against that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and many, and this is, and um, going back to Acts chapter two, one thing I wanted to mention too is, is I think a lot of those people in that chapter, I'm not sure if all of them were, were, were at the day of Pentecost or if that was later. I can't remember if there's a time difference, but I mean, it's the same chapter as the, the day of Pentecost where they had the, the, this huge outpouring of the spirit and many of them were already, you know, believers. So, you know, I think that's another instance of where it just shows that the spirit did fall upon many of them before they had been baptized. And so, and that goes along with this, the spirit blowing through and, and working in us. We don't know where it goes or where it comes, but, but this is how everyone who's born of the spirit is, is it, it, it you can't really say, Oh, I got it from this or it came from this source. Now I know I, I think I was going to briefly bring up that there are, you know, Lutherans and Anglicans, you know, some, some kinds of Anglicans, I think primarily believe that these passages do talk about baptismal regeneration that you can be, that they can be used to show that you are actually regenerated in baptism. And I can kind of see how they, they seem to, from when I've talked to Lutherans, they seem to interpret scripture more on face value. Do you know what I mean? Like they'll, they'll read a passage and they'll say that the, the clarity of scripture requires that we read it without trying to first make it make sense with everything else a little bit, kind of what you alluded to, Paul, you know, not, not worry so much systematically when you're reading a text, just read it and understand it. And then, you know, then, then you can fit, fit it in with the rest of scripture later. It's not quite what you were saying, but it's a similar kind of idea. So I know that they would read this and say that this is talking about baptism regeneration. And if we're talking about the patristic writings, the, the church fathers, basically since the second century, this is how they viewed this passage is that it's talking about water baptism. So I certainly don't hold that all the church fathers were infallible by any means. And we always need to go to the source, you know, add fontes to the source and re-examine scripture. And, and that's our ultimate source of authority. So I don't feel threatened that most of the church fathers didn't see this passage like I do, but I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and my point was simply, simply that, right. Is that when I said that, you know, your the biblical theology should, should drive and flow through to your systematics, right. It's, it's just that it, that, you know, we, we read scripture as if, um, I think we we were talking about in our in our chat thread earlier in the week, right? We we read scripture as if the the people and the hearers of of those who are writing and those who are preaching in in scripture uh, are just like us, and we really need to understand how would a first century Jew have understood that passage, right? How would how would Nicodemus have understood what Jesus said to him after he asked his questions about natural birth? Would, would he have understood that it's very possible that he would have understood Jesus as referencing Ezekiel, right? So that's the kind of biblical theology and, and context that should um, should flow through to your systematics and not the other way around. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies.
stand at the door you're hiding behind Can you hear me? Make my home.